Keith here. When I started making the first episode of, I had no experience doing podcast interviews, especially the technical side of things. It was a lot of confusing steps, setting up double enders or making do with low quality recordings on whatever app I could figure out. But it got a whole lot easier when I started using Zencaster. Made for podcasts with Zencaster, it's so easy to do everything. You and your guests log in with a browser and record studio quality sound and up to 4K video, even with an unstable connection. And it's an all-in-one deal. You don't need a lot of different tools or services. With Zencaster, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major platforms. If you've ever thought about making your own podcast, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TFEO and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story on Zencaster. Hey, it's Keith. If you're a lover of audio drama like I am, you need to know about the Apollo app. Apollo is designed around audio drama, so finding your next story is easy. You can always listen through Apollo for free, but there's also the Apollo Plus subscription. With it, you get ad-free listening, exclusives, and other bonus content for over 40 shows. And 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes to those creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or apollopods.com. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, audio drama producer and podcaster. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about their show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Starship Q-Star. Starship Q-Star is a sci-fi comedy created and co-written by Megan May and Lauren Anderson. When a tone-deaf space agency sends the first all-woman and non-binary crew on a PR mission to Mars, they inadvertently end up the last six humans in the universe. Led by co-captains and exes, Aurelia and Sim, Starship Q-Star follows this extremely queer crew on their quest across the galaxy to find a new home. Since its release, Starship Q-Star has won many awards for Best Comedy and Best Fiction at festivals all over the world. The first episode, Two Girls, One Captaincy, introduces us to the co-captains and crew of the Starship Q-Star as they try to do their jobs on a ship designed by chauvinists. I spoke to Megan and Lauren remotely from their home in Melbourne. Why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourselves as creative types, what your background is, how did you get into the creative field and that kind of thing. Lauren, would you like to go first? Sure. My name is Lauren Anderson. I generally call myself like a writer and producer, but uh, my background is really in direction as well as editing, I guess. And then I've become more of a writer and producer in recent years, although now I'm directing again. Yeah, I don't know how I got into doing all this stuff. I think I just always did. I got obsessed with Buffy when I was 
like at high school. And it was the first <laughs> time I started to really understand and dig into how TV is made. I love the idea of that was such a group effort that it wasn't just one person, that it was, there was a, a writer's room, you know, there's all these people coming together to, to make something. I just love that. And so I've just been in kind of scratching a creative itch. Yeah. I currently work in a few different fields. So I work in reality TV and I work in scripted television. Well, now also we do audio fiction. Did you do any creative stuff when you were a child or in school or did you study any of this? Yeah. I mean, like as a kid, I drew a lot and I do like little comics and things like that. Yeah. I didn't really make anything digital until I went to university. So I did an undergrad, like a bachelor of arts, which is just like more film studies and literature and all of those sorts of things. But it was sort of a sideways door into digital art, which is what they called it at the time, which was doing like short films and animation and sound design, which I wish I'd paid more attention to that now that we do what we do, because <laughs> I really didn't pay enough attention then. I went to film school basically after that. I um, did a directing master's and then I've also done a screenwriting master's as well. Wow. Yeah, it mostly just means I have a massive debt. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do on the show and uh, what your background is? Well, I'm Megan May, and I also have a massive debt. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, like I was pretty creative as a kid. I was more in the kind of performer side of things. I, I really loved acting. I really loved playing music and singing. But it wasn't until high school that I sort of started to do writing stuff. And I think that was in working with, like, I, I did a lot of musicals and, and drama classes. And so we do collaborative writing stuff and write monologues and that sort of thing. So that's kind of where I started doing that. And then straight out of high school, I did like a TAFE course, which I don't know, maybe like community college or technical college in the US. It was okay. just like a one year course in filmmaking, which I really liked. But I, because I grew up in a, a small town in Tasmania, which is very different to how it's portrayed in Warner Brothers cartoons. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean you don't have wild rampaging animals running everywhere? I mean, we do, <laughs> but they're a little smaller than they appear on screen. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's like it's a small place and it's an island and, and it, it always felt very far removed from any type of like film and TV industry, which is where I kind of wanted to get into. So it's sort of like I kind of talked myself out of following that as a career and was like, I'll do something more sensible. So I too did a Bachelor of Arts, but it was in English and history and I've never used any of that before. I guess yeah, I don't know why that is... <laughs> It's like such not a sensible <laughs> option in reality, but somehow we get sold that I it think, is. It's the most yeah. ridiculous thing you can it's do. It's like The Bachelor that you don't you do when you don't know what you want to do. Um, it's like yeah, very humanities, and and I like I didn't specify in too many things, and then I did even more a slash sensible, unsensible thing, and I joined the military for um four and a half, uh, just under five years, and worked in military intelligence, so slightly different to what I do now. Wow. Um, yeah. but I worked in, um, uh, psychological operations, which I guess most people know is like propaganda, but in Australia, it's much more of an intelligence field, but we would still do things like write radio plays, um, and stuff like that. So it was still a little bit involved in creativity, but eventually as a lefty creative type, the military wasn't for me. <laughs> um, so invariably I left and I, um, went to do VCA, which is Victorian College of the Arts or where we, a lot of people do film studies in Australia. And I did my master of screenwriting, which is where Lauren and I met. 
yeah, since then I've just been mostly focusing on writing. I've done a lot of development and I've been in writer's assistant for a lot of writer's rooms that are for shows that have been made here. Now I uh, was the co-writer with Lauren for the show. I produced it as well and um, was the voice of the computer as well. Great. So you both met in grad school, Mm. I guess I should ask specifically, Uh, you guys are together in a romantic sense. Is that fair to say? Very, like we're engaged. So yes. (laughs) Oh, congratulations. Very nice. So what made you, uh, I don't want to get into your personal lives, but I'm just curious as to what attracted you to each other from an artistic standpoint. What made you all want to work together on on a project Mm. like this or other projects? Yeah, I mean, we didn't actually work together for quite a while after we got to know each other, I suppose. It probably took a little while. But I I distinctly remember that we were at the pub with um, some of our classmates and she just pitched this idea that she had for something completely different. I just really loved it. It was like a funny, weird idea. And those are like, what I love is just funny, weird ideas. And so I just kept asking her about it. And then ultimately we worked on developing the idea for a little bit together. And that was how it sort of kicked off. And we just kept doing projects together after that. Yeah. So like, Megan, would you have a different? <laughs> no, no. I think for me, like, I like Lauren has a much more, like a, a much stronger comedy background. Like for me, I've, I've mostly had written dramas and, um, and like more serious sort of sci-fi stuff. So I think like for me, like working with Lauren has been like kind of helping me unlock that comedy side. And, and like, I, and I was always like really enjoyed her work mm. and like the, the, the characters and the, the humor in her work. I felt like maybe I needed more of that. And I think that we balance each other out in terms of like, I'm more of a plot driven person. Lauren's more of a character driven person. But then I think we mm. find a, like a harmony in, in between us. And we've sort of both improved on the areas that we were maybe weaker in in the start through working together but we actually started working Mm. together before we started dating so I don't know what that says about our (laughs) working relationship (laughs) must have been good enough (laughs) yeah well you know I didn't hear anything in your backgrounds about uh audio drama or podcasting or anything like Mm. that how did you both come to that particular medium I mean we, we had done some theater together which we found really exciting just the collaboration of it and the being able to make something like from start to finish and see it performed I think that uh, trying to do tv particularly in Australia it's very difficult to see things to fruition you're you're forever like pitching things or writing first episodes and so it felt a bit like we've got stories we want to tell didn't even really consider audio drama as an option which is like a bit of a shame until kind of the pandemic hit and suddenly everyone was Mm. pivoting to podcasts our writers guild in australia they ran a competition over lockdown i think everyone was scrambling to sort of save the creative arts so they're like let's do a competition for podcast writing and they got sponsored by audible and and they ran this competition and we're like oh this is an idea that we've had for a while and no one's ever going to make it as a tv show surely so let's let's pitch it for this australia is a really small market Mm. Um, in terms of television. So it really limits what kinds of stories you can get up because the budgets are small and people are very risk adverse. Um, They want things that are quite broad that are going to appeal to large audiences to try and get the biggest bang for your buck. For us, like as people who are really interested in creating sci-fi, that can be a problem. Yeah, audio drama just felt like a really great solution for that where we're like, we knew we had these ideas already that then became Starship Q-Star, which initially we were like sort of had dismissed in a way as something that we could never make because 
we just didn't see how we could get something to that scale up. Yeah. And then yeah. once we found it, it's just been like, oh my God, there's so mm. much stuff. How yeah. do we not know? We're like always starving for queer content and like it's a very gay yeah. form of media. There's a lot of queer <laughs> shows and it's like been so yeah. amazing to discover all this and it's just like now we're like beating the drum and yeah. telling everyone we know about how great mm. of a, a form it is. Yeah. Talk to me about this show. What would you all think of Starship Q-Star? What do you think about? I think sometimes when you're writing queer shows, there's a lot of worry about being a good representation and making sure that it has a good message or whatever. And we just like, we wanted to just make something that was fun and silly and that the characters just happen to be queer because that's our experience. Yeah, I think it's just like wholesome and fun and, and silly, but also the sci-fi and, and nods to that classic sci-fi that we both grew up on that like we're both big Star Trek fans. I'm sure if you've listened, you, you can probably hear that reference. I, like the very first opening of the first episode, I was like, that's a little bit like the Star Trek theme. Yeah, um, I think yeah. we pitched like to our um, composer. It's like the opening of Star Trek if Janelle Monet made it. So that's yeah. like how it came about. But yeah, so we're big Star Trek fans. So it's like the, a funny, silly, gay version of that is kind of what I think mm. about. Like for me, like designing a, char- a comic character, you can't have good people like these people (laughs) you need to be very flawed you need to be a little selfish or very selfish in your own way you have to be kind of a bad person or you need to be able to mine what the negative aspects of that person are because that's what creates friction and that's what creates comedy so it was really important to me that these characters should be very flawed very chaotic and it was important for us to have queer characters that could be really flawed, that could be really imperfect and really chaotic and selfish at times. And that for it to be okay, not needing them to be so saintly, which we feel was sort of a place that we've gotten to with or had gotten to with um, yeah. a lot of queer television. Right, right. If you have a, a queer character, they've got to be either a victim or they've got to be perfectly saintly, right? Yeah, and that, so. that's that's the totally. case of when you yeah. just have one character who is representing a community, whether it be, you know, gender sexuality or race that you it has become like a model and you don't want to be like oh well, there's only one queer person so they're the villain um but when you have the entire cast <laughs> right. be um queer then we can make them terrible um <laughs> yeah that's that's a really interesting point you know the, the thing i always like to remind uh when i'm directing actors or if i'm you know working and writing it's that you know the people in comedies the characters don't think what's happening to them is funny mm. Um, and that, you know, for them, the stakes are real and they're very high. What is the genesis for this story? Where did it come from? So a few years ago, there was a viral news story that went around that I think it was a mistranslation of an, an original article that said NASA is considering all female crews to go to Mars because they won't have sex and relationships. And then obviously every queer woman was like, hang on a second. Uh, I got to tell you about a concept called uh, lesbianism. Um, But I think it was mistranslated because it was like something about pregnancy or whatever. But it was just like it was a thing that had gone around and we we had seen it and laughed at it and said, oh, one day we'll make a show about that or something. We saw it come around and we were like, that would be a great show, but that someone is definitely making that show already. And so we were just sort of left it. And then it came around again and we're like, we still haven't seen someone making that show. So 
maybe we should make that show. Yeah. Did you have any ambitions for this project before you did it? Or was this just something you said, we want to do this, let's do it? We had like a tiered sort of ambition plan for it. The first ambition was to be able to produce six by half hour comedy that was in a sitcom style that could Mm -hmm. be appreciated by people in television to prove that we could write and create that kind of content as a professional sort of ambition. And then like beyond that, if we could take it further, like that felt like a real pipe dream at the beginning. Really like what we thought was it would be so great to be able to make something and release it and have people enjoy it and for it to be 100% Mm. our voice and our tone and our our writing not diluted by any broadcaster or any notes from other producers. Like we could just really like balls out, do what we love and create something that we love and for better Mm. or for worse, it's going to be very much us. And then anything Mm. on top of that was like a a dream. So it's like that was the the goal is just to really just make something that people might listen to. Why don't we talk a little bit about the show itself? Starship Q-Star's first episode is called Two Girls, One Captaincy. We discover the crew of the Starship Q-Star. They're brought out of hibernation to do a boring routine mission on Mars. But then they discover that their entire mission was designed by chauvinistic men as a political stunt and that the commanders of the space force that they belong to, they don't have any faith in their abilities. Further, once they land on Mars, they discovered that while they were asleep, the entire human race has been destroyed. And they are the only people left. They do find one survivor from the Mars colony, Bob. And from there, they have to travel the universe to find a new home. So, how do you like our ship? Ready to co-captain it through space? Isn't it just so... pink? Mm, Extremely pink. Everywhere. The walls, the floor, even the space bidet in my quarters. It is like we're travelling in the belly of an intergalactic flamingo. I find it calming. Liberating, even. Ah, I'm just going to experiment the shit out of this universe. I am so friggin' excited. <laughs> yes, it's such an exciting mission. The ISA's first all-women crew. Well, first non-men crew. Empowering their way through the stars to Mars Research Station, where they'll requisition rare regolith... Dirt. It's Martian dirt. ...and guide it safely home to Earth. Exactly as seven mostly male crews have done so before us. No one has done exactly this mission, Co-Captain Banks. Why else would the ISA assign two captains to ensure its success? Especially when they already had me. A highly decorated career military and ISA officer. Oh, Sim. They were scared that one lady captain would get on the rag and crash into the moon. Yep. A short, historic mission. All we need to do is... Go, Captain Jackson. I get it. You think I'm going to embarrass you in front of that douchebag General Swan? But Sim, he's a douchebag. And the ISA rules, also douchey. So how about this? You be co-captain of lame rules and boring procedures, and I'll be the co-captain of cool, actually important things like exploration and experiments and having hard bonus for space. One of the things I think that it's really interesting about this first episode is a lot of the humor that comes in is from is making fun of chauvinism. Hmm. You know, you've got a lot of jokes about the way the very conservative male view of women and their ability or lack thereof is there like the controls don't even work because the, the ship is in one manual 
mode, which is a great joke. Um, it's <laughs> like nothing they can do actually works. They have high heeled spacesuits. Everything is pink, right? It's it's uh, a really a great sort of skewer of that kind of worldview. Talk to me about why you wanted to focus sort of on that particular area for this first episode and why you wanted that to be the the source of a lot of the humor here. I think it came from that article where it was this well, at least perceived ignorance of women having full lives and like whoever had designed this plan of an all-female mission because they're not going to hook up, just that kind of obliviousness to the actual situation. And I think it's just a, it comes mm. from like I've been in the military, which is obviously very male-dominated and everything's designed yeah. for men and and it, you, mm. you get treated a different way. Um, and I think all of us have kind of worked, or at least Lauren has worked in male-dominated fields. The film industry is very male-dominated and often there is a lack of understanding. And I think women in STEM probably face a lot of similar things. And that's just skewering that as far as possible. Like it's obviously ridiculous, but I think some of it too came from the actual historical things like Sally Ride getting tampons for her six-day mission and them not knowing how many because <laughs> even though they're rocket scientists, they are like, is a hundred enough for six days? <laughs> so it's like that kind of ignorance and, and like obviously things are different now, but we were just kind of playing on that from then. Yeah. yeah. But like, yeah, I know like and yeah, in our research, I think also there were stories about that they had unwrapped all of the tampons as well. So they were just like floating around free to I don't I don't even know why they would do that so uh and then also just historically like there's often been an issue with spacesuits they often don't have enough pieces for women to do spacewalks because they often have bigger suits they might not be the size that the women need or they don't have all of the parts available um so there's been an issue in the past, at least, where women haven't done as many spacewalks because there's this aren't suits that are available to them to actually do them. Yeah, I think there was a, like um, the first all women spacewalk was supposed to happen, but they only had one size small that was functional on the ship. So they had to cancel it. Yeah. So a lot of it did come from like real research and then just really pushing that as far as we could go. And I think too, like the, the, the kind of concept of the show a little bit for us is, you know, what, what would happen if you completely blew up the planet and started again? And, and what from mm. Earth do you keep and what do you take to this new world? And mm. I think so sort of showing like the hangovers of patriarchy and or like, you know, heteronormative, heteronormativity, I can't say that word. And like, <laughs> and then for like a, a bunch of queer characters, like how do they form their society yeah. and what do they carry over like uh sim the co-captain is like very much a part of that organization and and has a arc where they're like it's very difficult for them to let go of those old structures and those old ideas that have been part of their life and letting go of what's yeah. harmful to them and reimagining what their future is going to be and it's yeah so i guess it's sort of representative of like we're showing the worst of earth in order to show like how we can rebuild it in a different way. Yeah. And that that actually reminded me like during that time of early lockdown, there was that real sense of like maybe this is going to change everything, you know, maybe it's going to be like a great reset of how society works. Like there was this mm. real optimism for a hot minute. <laughs> and I think that that kind of has bled into the show a bit. Yeah. Speaking of, here's the regolith. Mission objective C complete. Think team, think. 
What really happened to Mars Crew? Where did these strange plants come from? Could the Mars Crew and the plants be one and the same? <gasps> My God! I have a fun mystery. How do we achieve mission objective D, transporting the regolith into the hold? Oh, let's figure it out now. Whoa, what was that? That sounded like our new mission objective. Sounded like aliens to me. <gasps> objective alien. That sounds cool. Oh, shit. I hope insectoid alien babes didn't land and praying mantis the Mars crew. Oh, that'd be a disaster. <laughs> uh, interesting hypothesis, Mo. However, I have read that mantis sexual cannibalism is far less common when the species are left undisturbed by scientists. Ah, uh, but this is a research station, Solaris. It's full of disturbing scientists. Relax, everyone. Co-Captain Jackson and I know exactly what to do. That's right, Co-Captain Banks. Mm -hmm. It's time to Explore get the regular on the ship and, and get out the of the alien mystery. Oh boy. One of the things I think is really funny is that you don't have one captain, you have two co-captains, Aurelia Banks and Sim Jackson, who happen to be exes as well. So Aurelia is a free spirit. She's a scientist. She uh, wants to be liked by everybody. She wants to keep things rather loose. And then uh, Sim, on the other hand, is a career military officer, very by the book, wants everything to be done uh, according to protocol. And we also meet the three other members of the crew. We have Mo, who is the medical officer, who is uh, shall we say libidinous, um, very, very eager to meet aliens and, um, get romantic with them. We also have Dusty, who is the pilot, who's very competitive and very aggressive. And then we have Solaris, who's non-binary and engineer, who's young and they seem like a prodigy type. I don't know mm. if you were going for a Wesley mm. Crusher kind of vibe there, but hopefully less <laughs> annoying. Yeah. <laughs> and then on Mars, they pick up Bob, who is a botanist. Bob is really just trying to figure out where he belongs in the world, not just in the crew, but just in life in general. And I think it's great that Bob is the token cis white straight guy. You know, you got to have a token character in yeah. there, right? And the most beloved, um, I think, like, yeah. or at least one I, of, like, people love him. It's actually so funny the yeah. amount of lesbians who've said, I'm a lesbian, but uh, I relate to Bob the most. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone feels like Bob. Yeah, so I love that for Bob. You, who, who are you? Who are you? And what do you want? Why are you just in ducks and a bathrobe? It's gross! Answer me! Uh, I'm also wearing headphones. Come here! Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh, where do you think you're going, Cinderella? I'm not Cinderella. Who are you then? Science officer Bob Boyd. Botanist. Very delicate, unable to touch the ground. Impressed by your strength. About to pee in fear. Dusty, put him down. <laughs> Bob Boyd, where is Mars crew? Were they mantis? What? Turned into house plants. What? what? No, no I, I grew these plants. Hmm. A less exciting but much more logical explanation strikes again. It's to help with oxygen, because, you know, the, the base is kind of falling apart. We noticed. Where are the crew? All I know is, I was having a nap a few months back, and when I woke up, everyone was gone. Just like my sixth birthday, all over again. <laughs> Are you here to rescue me? Definitely not. <laughs> now, headphones back mm -hmm. on. Music loud.
Talk to me about this cast of characters. I mean, they're all very mm-hmm. strong personalities and they're all very different. Talk to me about how you came up with this as your crew and why you wanted these particular people to tell your story. First, it was important for us to have as very different people as as much as possible from each other. Yeah, I'm just trying to think how we even started here because they have developed so much from where we began and mm. they, they're continuing to develop now. So we've thought about like comic archetypes. I think that's where they initially started. Yeah. So there's obviously the the Lothario, the the like inexperienced one, the, I don't know, Lauren knows comedy theory better than me <laughs> commedia dell'arte types yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah we we started with some of that and then we that was sort of our very very first starting point and but then we really dug into them i think particularly we started with Simonarelia as the starting point because they had the clearest friction between them from there we pivoted out what could be the next like biggest contrast point if someone is very free like Aurelia and someone's very restrained like Sim then where do we go from there what are other things that can rub these people the wrong way Dusty who has changed so much over the development probably the most out of any of the characters initially it was all about ambition they were very ambitious they wanted to be the best in the room but I think like that evolved to be someone who is more perceived to be the best in the room but isn't necessarily interested in that and has a heart of gold Mo and Solaris really quickly like Solaris was the smartest person in the room but the most inexperienced with people mm-hmm. um, right. and Mo probably has the most life experience, but doesn't know how to connect with anybody on an emotional level. You know, these characters definitely do give you the friction that you were talking about, right? And I think that's important, Mm. especially, well, it's important for any kind of storytelling, Mm. but you know, in in a comedy, you, you, you gotta have the tension. Otherwise there's, there's no, nothing to make jokes about. The fact that they're all have something different, but they're all have to work together is a great setup, you know, and that's kind of a classic yeah. setup. It's almost like a buddy cop movie between the two captains, mm. right? That is familiar territory. But I do mm. think that the setting and the characters and their particular position give us something fresh and unusual. Yeah, I hope so. Like, <laughs> I think it's like a fine line between like a, a massive homage and relying on some tropes to get the story told, but also trying to just give our perspective and our take to give it something new. We've seen a lot of Star Treks that have been Mm. male captains and from, you know, male creators. So it's now a a comedy that is not from those people. So (laughs) yeah, well, I have to ask now, uh, Voyager, yay or nay? Yay, for sure. Yay. Okay. I, I, like, I, I feel like Seven of Nine was like one of my big gay awakenings. So uh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Same. Oh, I think I was a bit awake then, but um, I was just dying for her and Janeway to please get together. The Erst, my God. You clearly have queer rep going on yes. here. But there's also, we talk, sometimes you talk about queer narratives, which is mm-hmm. the story is changed because it reflects a particular non-heteronormative point of view. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, did you guys think about writing in a queer kind of way or telling this story from a queer perspective beyond simply representing the characters? I think maybe that's just an inherent thing. And, and thinking back about the way that the themes work for us and that it feels like 
I sometimes describe it as kind of like when you come out, start dating women and suddenly, oh, I don't have to stick to those gender roles in a relationship or, oh, I don't need to do that or, oh, my partner will do this for me and we'll work together in this way and and things don't apply and you sort of rebalance it. So I think in like in terms of the way we think about, I guess, relationships, relationships and friendships maybe are a little just queerer or like maybe that's a specific way but maybe mm. that's more subconscious than conscious I guess yeah I disagree I think it's such a queer show and I think that is in such it's in, inherently in how the characters relate to each other mm. how they speak to each other and how we've designed it like I've made the short films about coming out which you know just ooh, I'm so over it you know I think we've, <laughs> for, for us it's just like like that just feels like that's what an inherently queer story has become in many circles. There's nothing wrong with those sorts mm. of stories. I still love consuming them myself. But as a creator, like I'm done with that now. We've done it. We want to be more than that. What does it look like to have a queer cast, queer characters that just can be inherently queer, but it's not all they talk about because I don't talk about it all day long uh, right. as a queer person. I talk about many things. I do talk about being queer a lot, but, you know, yeah, I, I, it's not all I am I, as well. I suppose, too, it's like the way that we handle things like, oh, suddenly three people are dating and then they're not and it's fine. And maybe in our yeah. lives, like people suddenly being in a poly relationship and then it's just like every day that just kind of happens or like people are friends with their ex more often in queer communities. So I I guess it's just like telling the stories of characters that we know that represent people in our lives. It inherently becomes a queer story. So you've completed uh, the full season. Yep. Yeah. Season one's all done. And are you planning a second season? We are not right now because uh, Megan, do you want to talk about why we're not doing a second season right now? Um, well, right now we're working on a, an, a short animated series based on the podcast, which we're very excited oh, about. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think technically we can't make another season unless we get no. permission because uh, we've it, it's through this program with our national broadcaster, the ABC here in Australia and Screen Australia, who are um, our f- national funding body. And it's a program for comedy writers to make some shorts for a concept and then it can potentially be made into a pilot. Part of that is we have to sign a 12-month option with the broadcaster that we can't make another <laughs> anything from the show. Yeah. But um, but I think they would let us if we wanted to. But I think we're just focusing on the animation now. That's really great. Well, you know, I'm thinking about, since you're Star Trek fans, I'm thinking about Lower Decks. Yeah. Yeah, we're big fans of Lower Decks. <laughs> so congratulations, by the way. That sounds like a, a fantastic way to go forward with the yeah. show. What do you struggle with? I think this show is what it is because we didn't have to think about other people and how much things cost and Mm, um, making sure it fits something to get something else. And I think a lot of times when we develop stuff, it's, oh, would they even make that in Australia? Probably not. Let's try something different. Let's tweak this and, and, and let's like write it in a way that would be lower budget. I never think my writing is good enough. I've struggled to send Mm. it to people. I struggle to pitch my own writing, which is why I, like working with a co-writer because it feels less terrifying <laughs> when you're both on yeah. the on the front page of a script. I often struggle to just do the creative part and I think about the strategy and the plan and will is it worth doing this or will I waste my time and I should be doing a project that will help get me a job on this show rather than just letting it be 
purely joyful and expressive. Thinking about like what expresses your voice versus what is a sellable concept and deciding if it's more important to show someone your voice at that time than it is to have a concept they want to buy. We're starting to do a little bit of actual like writing with with companies and with producers and it's now having to be like, oh, okay, you have a very different idea of what I think this should be, but I have to like go in a different direction than my instincts would and learning how mm. to manage yeah, that. Yeah, learning how to manage mm-hmm. that and learning how to do the best mm. that you can, even if it's going mm. against your natural instincts. But and it's like right. learning to to do some some jobs as a job and also yeah. to find to find the joy and the spark in something that doesn't necessarily give it to you initially that's me <laughs> i think it's the capitalism <laughs> part of the art that is the problem <laughs> <laughs> lauren what do you struggle with learning to trust your voice that your voice is the thing that is special about you and that's what people are actually going to be interested in. I think that it's been a real lesson or um, confirmation of that in doing these projects is that if you make something that really excites you and that you think is funny or that you are willing to commit all this time to and enjoy, then chances are people respond And so I think it's been about really trusting yourself and to lean into all of those things. That's been something that I've gotten away from leaning into that voice and those ideas that I have and stop trying to push those into a a perceived box that I think other people want and just do what I want to do and pitch what I want to pitch. And I think that that has been more successful which sounds so obvious, but um, I think I just went down a path that was leading me in the wrong direction. How do you measure success? <laughs> well, I, I believe Lauren has said to me many times, can't you just enjoy the one good thing and stop like stressing about the next thing? <laughs> the answer um, is no, you cannot. <laughs> Uh, look, I I think it's really hard because I think it's that thing. It's like I, you always, as a creative, it's like I want to do some the next thing and I want to make the next thing or maybe that's just existing now and we are always having to be ready to find a next job. I think that I feel like the most successful when people tell us they love something and they connect it to it in a way that's meaningful and that feels the most important, I guess, like when we've had people send us messages going, oh, yeah, like as listening to your show, like my parents aren't supportive of me being queer. And I really like it was been really joyful to listen to it and stuff like that makes you and there's people in different countries that I would never have connected with in any other way. That feels really um, special. Paying rent is also mm. amazing. <laughs> Paying rent would be better. But, um, Very practical measure you. of success. <laughs> if I could ever own a house uh, in Australia, which is insane because no one can, uh, that would be, I would know yeah. I was successful. I, I've been working on this for a while, working on trying to change my perspective on success to be about what is fun? What do I enjoy? And am I having a good time? If I'm doing my work and I'm feeling like it's working with my life and I'm enjoying it and I'm making something that I'm having fun with, I think that's really successful. 
because I think I was sort of pursuing an idea for what it was to be successful in this field. And it's like the bar just keeps moving. So if Mm. you're always trying to shoot for a level of success, you'll never get there because the next thing will come or you should do the next thing or you're not quite doing this or that. Like you can never quite get there. But if you're enjoying it and you're able to pay the rent and you're able to see your friends and you're able to express yourself and make something that's really entertaining, if I can do that, then I feel like I'm being successful. Ladies, the situation is deteriorating. I shudder to think of you all alone up there. No one to protect you but the binary robot. Seriously, this guy! Under no circumstances are you to leave Mars base. Stay safe. In the strong arms of your illustrious Mars crew, they'll know what to do. Do not attempt to return. Do not... Ah, forget it. By the time you get this message, Earth will have been... No further communications have been received. No satellite activity detected. No cellular, no Wi-Fi, no life signs, no radio... No life signs? Earth has been later dazed, Alderaan. Sensors indicate Earth's total destruction. <laughs> no, it can't be. We can't go home. But we can't stay here. So what the heck do we do now, captains? Well. The comedy in Starship Q-Star is energetic, over-the-top, and a little raunchy, but it's played with enthusiasm. It's also got a lot of heart, as these characters, finally on their own in the universe, figure out who they can be and what their future looks like. You can listen to Starship Q-Star on most major podcast platforms, or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them, and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. This show is a production of Alien Ghost Robot Creative Media. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or are an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our website at thefirstepisodeof.com. We're happy to be a part of the Audio Drama Lab, a Discord-based resource for audio drama development and networking. Check it out at audiodramalab.com. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well, I'll tell you what I know. I was there with him, driving through the back roads under the stars. I was witness to wonders and miracles, and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged. Not even Rael. People ought to know the truth. And I was there. 
The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.